1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is David Crowe, our banking editor. From Milan, we are joined by Rachel Sanderson, our Italian corporate correspondent. And from the US, we're joined by US banking editor Laura Noonan. This week, we'll be taking a look at another busy week for Goldman Sachs. Also, Dominique Moss, Return Hub's chief executive, talks to us about getting more women into finance. And finally, a look at Carige, the failing Italian bank, and how the system has bailed it out. First, though, to Goldman Sachs. And it's been a busy week for Goldman. We're joined on the line by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. Talk us through the highlights of this past week, Laura.
2: So there was two big stories last week. The first was a continuing fallout from the Malaysian 1MDB scandal, which really Goldman Sachs hasn't been able to shake and it looks as if that's going to deepen and continue to haunt the bank over the coming months. The other was the new partner class. Every two years, Goldman Sachs announces a new partner class. That's the highest level in the firm. It's a very powerful, prestigious thing. That day, they had a pretty good story to tell. So it was all about diversity. This was the highest number of women ever, the highest number of blacks ever, and one of the highest years for Asians. So they were very proud of that. They were also proud of the millennial representation. So so in total, the new class was 69 people. Millennials made up 29%. Now, if we think about the women in particular, so they were very excited about the female highest ever percentage. However, we're still talking about even with this big number of women. 26% of the total partner group are female. So it's progress, but let's not get too carried away. But nonetheless, the bank was pretty upbeat when they were talking about that.
1: Well, they could certainly use a good news story like that, but um, what's been happening on the 1MDB front?
2: Just to catch up anyone who hasn't been following this story, 1MDB scandal in Malaysia where Goldman Sachs helped the Malaysian State Investment Fund, 1MDB, to raise $6.5 billion in bonds a few years back and Goldman charged the fund, $600 million for this transaction, which is a pretty high fee level by anybody's standards. A lot of the money ultimately went missing, around $2.7 billion of it, and there's been various legal actions around that, including two former Goldman Sachs managing directors who've been charged for bribery and money laundering. So there's a lot of pressure on Goldman to explain exactly what its role was in this, how the money could have been raised through them without them having oversight of where it ended up and whether some of their senior executives were involved in what was a fairly elaborate kickback and bribery scheme which was allegedly perpetrated by a Malaysian national who had links to the firm. So that's the backdrop to it. This week it turned out that one of the things in the DOJ's charges against one of the gentlemen who has been charged with a crime was that there were other... Goldman Sachs people who were involved in this, besides just the two people who've been charged, and one of the claims was that there was a very senior executive who was at one point in a room with the man at centre of all this, a Malaysian man called Jolo. Now it transpired last week that the very senior executive was in fact former Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein, and that certainly escalates things well off the chain. So we understand that while Mr. Blankfein was in the room, people say that it was a meeting hosted by the Malaysian Prime Minister and that Mr Blankfein didn't know that this other guy, Joe Lowe, would be attending and that they didn't have a meeting per se. They were just at the same meeting. Now, you can get fairly heavily into the nuances there, but at the end of the day, the CEO of the bank was in the room with this guy who is now at the centre of a fairly big probe. And it does make things uncomfortable for government. Certainly, perception-wise, it isn't good. Then it also emerged later in the week that Tim Leisner, who's one of the former Goldman Sachs mine directors being charged and was actually pleaded guilty to a number of charges in relation to all this. We got details of one of his transcripts and he basically is arguing that the behaviour he engaged in was something endemic within the bank. So what he's saying is that he conspired with other employees and agents of Goldman Sachs. And that what he did was, and I quote, very much in line of its culture of Goldman Sachs to conceal facts from certain compliance and legal employees of Goldman Sachs. So he's basically saying that what he did was effectively the status quo. Now, Goldman Sachs has been saying all along that they were effectively deceived by the people who perpetrated this and that the firm itself had no idea. So for Tim Leisner to go so heavily around what the culture of the firm is that really cuts against that defence.
1: Well, let me bring in David now. It has been a kind of frenetic period, not just this past week, but over the past few weeks for for Goldman, a mix of largely bad news. When MDB obviously dominates all of that, what do you think the fallout has been so far?
3: Well, investors, having initially seemed to shrug it off, appear now to be uh, fretting somewhat. Uh, The shares down 7% on Monday in, in New York. The fallout has yet to emerge, really. There's a a crunch meeting between Goldman and the DOJ this week, and uh, that will sort of set in motion what sanctions, if any, the bank faces. And these range from a, a sort of slap on the wrist or even just going after the individuals involved and leaving the bank out of it, right up to the nuclear option whereby the regulators could threaten to revoke or even revoke uh, Goldman's licence and uh, the DOJ could launch criminal proceedings against the bank. Now, just to be clear, that nuclear option is probably not very likely. The various changes of uh, regulators in, in the US under the Trump administration are seen to have been relatively pro-industry and and if HSBC managed to avoid it amid all its problems in 2012, the, the bet is that Goldman will as well.
1: Interesting kind of chatter out of Malaysia as well this week was that the Malaysian authorities are considering whether Goldman has a future in the country. That's obviously up in the air as well.
3: Well, you could turn it on its head, I suppose, and ask the question, will banks want to deal with countries like Malaysia again? Part of the sort of long term fallout of this is that emerging markets uh, touted for years as a growth driver amid stagnation in the West are very dangerous places to do business. Just ask HSBC, ask Standard Chartered, who have both been caught up in in money laundering and and, and bribery charges in recent years. And now ask Goldman. Absolutely.
1: Well, for their sake, let's hope the next week is slightly uh, quieter. But um, this story clearly will run and run. Let's move on to our second story. Now, the other day, I caught up with Dominique Moss, who founded Return Hub a couple of years ago. This is a business that seeks to get women back into the financial services sector, typically women who'd worked in the sector before and are now much needed to boost female numbers especially in senior roles in the sector. As we've heard uh, at Goldman Sachs, more female partners were promoted this year than than in previous years. But it's still a really big problem, as highlighted on Tuesday with news in the the UK's Hampton Alexander Review, that at the very senior level, there are insufficient women. Well, here's what uh, Dominique Moss had to say to me uh, when I spoke to her the other day.
0: Um, My background uh, is largely executive search. So I've worked in financial services for about 20 years and about 16 of those in executive search. And um, I launched the business back in 2016. So we're just just over two years old now, um, really to fill a huge gap in the recruitment and executive search industry to work with those individuals who have taken a career gap or taken a different path for a while, but want to relaunch their corporate careers.
1: Is this largely about getting kind of mothers back to work after they've taken maternity leave or, or, or career gaps?
0: Well, <laughs> that's a good question because I think there are three big myths about returners. One is that they're all women. Two is that they're all mothers. And three is that they all want to work part time. And whilst that is certainly true of you know significant numbers, it's certainly not the case for everybody.
1: Tell us about the the, the foundation of the company then. You created this thing a couple of years ago. Uh, was it instantly commercially viable?
0: Um, well, it all came about really after I had a meeting with one of the senior individuals, the recruitment individuals within one of the big investment banks down at Canary Wharf. And they had launched their own return to work programme or returnship. Um, and I was fascinated by the concept of this sort of low risk structure for an employer to bring people back who've had a career gap and give those people some CV worthy experience. Um, and one of the questions I had was, you know, how many applications do you get and how many places? And when she told me that they had 400 applications for 20 places, I was completely gobsmacked and thought, you know, who is helping all these. 380 that aren't getting on this program, and that there must be lots of employers who would love to do the same thing but just didn't have the resources or the know-how, um, and that there was a place for a financial services headhunter to do, um, you know, to, to, to do that. And um, I think one of the things that sort of made me realise that there was a commercial viability to this business, perhaps might not have been the case, maybe even sort of three or four years ago, is, is really the Women in Finance Charter, and obviously more recently um, the gender pay gap reporting that uh, that came in last year.
1: So now you've kind of grown quite rapidly over this period and you've got a, a couple of dozen clients um, and I see from your website that HSBC is among the blue chip clients you've got. How do you how did you get in there and, and what kind of work are you doing for them?
0: Well HSBC has been a huge supporter of what we're doing at the Return Hub They've actually been a client of mine for well over a decade. And when I went to talk to them about the launch of the business and some of the senior leaders in that firm, they were very keen to be supportive. And, uh, you know, for a, for a startup to have a FTSE 100 client uh, was absolutely fantastic and a real game changer for us. And so we have uh, begun to place people in that organization really across the firm in various different areas. And, and yeah, so hugely grateful for the support that they've given us and you know several others.
1: Very good. Well, let's hope that your uh, your work with them and with clients across financial services starts to to fix the uh, the gender imbalance in the sector. Thank you, Dominique. Thank you. Let's move on now to the final item for this week. And a look at Carige. This the Italian lender that all but failed the other day and was bailed out uh, in an emergency rescue by the other Italian lenders. We're joined down the line uh, from Milan by Rachel Sanderson. Uh, thanks for joining us, Rachel tell us exactly what's gone on with Carige.
4: We've had another bank rescue in Italy and in this situation it's Carige which is a genuine local bank. It's one of Italy's mid-sized banks. It's it's been struggling for about three years. We had a large number of MPLs that were built up bad loans after the sovereign crisis, but that was also exacerbated the, the impact on the balance sheet because they found that there was an accounting scandal uh, that took place. Since then, Khadija has bumped along. It had a new shareholder come in, the malakalsa family, who were a steel dynasty, and some sort of new shareholders put in about 500 million about a year ago, a bit less than that, which was hoping would would shore the bank up. But the ECB came in, did an inspection, and said, no, it needed another bolt of capital into it, and it also needed to start looking for a merger partner. Subsequent to that, there was a bust-up at board level. The chief executive even put in by the Malacalza family walked out. Uh, New management came in. The ECB was bearing down against this sort of a backdrop, as we've seen, of, of spreads widening on Italian 10-year BTV bonds over German debt. It was all looking very tight at the last minute. So over the weekend, the Italian banking system made a decision to effectively underwrite a subordinated bond so that that Caddijay would be able to bring about 400 million a bond, a bond worth about 400 million of capital, to be able to shore up its balance sheet in the short term and then undertake the latest restructuring of the bank, of which there's going to be a board meeting at the end of December, just before Christmas, 21st December, to decide um, how to do the, the latest relaunch.
1: I suppose for anyone from outside the country uh, who's not following Italian finance that closely, This will just heighten nervousness about the fragility of the Italian financial system, particularly under the new Italian government, whereas you say Italian government bonds and indeed corporate bond yields have shot up as those jitters have increased. Put it in context for us, Rachel.
4: It's worth saying of the offset that that Carige is a problem that has been bubbling for three years. Um, and there's been a, very much an understanding in the market in Italy and, and here in Milan, where finance is based, that something would have to come—a sort of an extraordinary solution would have to happen for j So, so this isn't. This is, as it were, a, a hangover. This was a can that was kicked down the road when bigger banks, which, were Monte Paschi di Siena, you know, had a had 6.6 billion put into it, state-backed last year, and and two banks in the Veneto were were effectively closed down. Um, Vicenza and Veneto Banca. So, so Carige was was another can being kicked down the road. And to that extent, it's nothing new. It's, it's from a crisis that was, that was bubbling for a while and one of the last ones to be cleaned up. But set against that, we do have a problem in Italy, as you said, um, widening spreads. The spreads yesterday went to about 3.03. That's the 10-year BTBs to German Bund. Senior bankers in Milan are concerned that if the spreads on Italian ten-year BTBs to German bund get to 350 to 400 basis points. It's going to trigger capital hikes, particularly across mid-sized banks, uh, which still come under the ECB and um, you know European regulatory authorities. That is definitely a point of concern. Carlo Bonomi, who is the head of the Northern Regional Group of Industrialists. Uh, yesterday made a statement that the j Rescue, let's put it that way, which was underpinned, as we said, by the Italian banking system through what's the um, Deposit Guarantee Fund, who have agreed to underwrite up to €320 million euros of this subordinated bond that's coming out. Bonomi said that it was necessary to do this rescue in order to prevent a domino effect, causing a crisis across the Italian banking system at a moment when it's already under strain. I spoke to Mr. Bonomi 10 days ago, and he was saying that already industrialists, business owners in northern Italy, um, and in particular in Lombardy, which is one of Europe's richest industrial regions, were finding that banks were turning down their requests for credit lines for new debt. Uh, So we're already seeing a credit squeeze on the ground, which is very bad news because, of course, Italy is an economy where uh, businesses, the mid-sized businesses that make up the backbone of the economy are funded predominantly by bank debt. And if they can't get that debt from the banks, if we've got a credit squeeze, those businesses are quite possibly going to start um, not being able to produce in the way they have done. Recently, um we're already seeing data points indicating that there's a possibility that Italy is going into recession. And, of course, that is a, a loop that then will build up those bad loans potentially again, and that's going to hit the banking sector again.
1: Turbulent times ahead, by the sounds of it. Rachel, thanks ever so much for joining us. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank David here in the studio, our guest Dominique Moss from The Return Hub. Thanks also to Laura in New York and Rachel in Milan. And thank you for listening. Do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer if you are not already a subscriber. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Martin Staber. Until next week, goodbye.